Well, Merry Christmas, Gateway family. It's great to see you this morning. Hope you are all doing well. As we prepare our hearts for the Christmas season, we've been continuing our journey through the Psalms. And so I want you to find Psalm 110 this morning. Psalm 110. Now, if you're visiting with us, maybe thinking that's not the normal place to turn the Sunday before Christmas. But yet we've seen in the Psalms for the last several weeks, there's a whole genre, a whole type of Psalms known as the Messianic Psalms. Psalms that point us to the Messiah, to who Christ is, to Jesus himself, who we are celebrating this Christmas season. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at Psalm number 2 and Psalm number 132, both Messianic Psalms, where we saw the brokenness of the world. We saw how Jesus was a new king and a new priest and how there's hope for us, there's rest for us when we delight in Christ, the Messiah. Today in Psalm 110, we're going to see again the reality of the brokenness of the world. But even more important this morning, there's a simple truth in Psalm 110 I want you to see. And it's simply this, that Jesus is the reigning king. That Jesus is the reigning king. And everything this psalm can be encapsulated with is this one idea that Jesus is the king who is reigning. Now, boys and girls, it's great to have you with us in the service. When we talk about Jesus being a reigning king, don't think about what's happening outside yesterday and today. That's not that type of reign. This is the fun of English, right? It's pronounced exactly the same way. But it's, but it's totally different in meaning. Reign, R-E-I-G-N, means to rule, to be in charge, to be the one who everyone else submits to. So we talk about kings reigning over their country. So we're talking about at Christmas in Psalm 110 that Jesus is the reigning king, the sovereign one, the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And that's important for us to remember because the Christmas story is not just a cute baby in a manger. But it's a baby who was born of supernatural birth, but he didn't come to stay a cute baby. He came to live a a life, fulfilling the law perfectly. He came to die to rescue his people. He came to rule and to reign as king over all. And so Christmas reminds us what Christ came to do. He came to rule. He came to reign. And so as we read Psalm 110 this morning, I want you to be looking for what here is pointing us to Jesus as the king. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God. Psalm number 110, I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. And the words will be on the screen for you also. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. And we're so thankful for all we're celebrating this Christmas season of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and the hope that we find this Christmas season. I pray this morning as we open your word, Lord, that you would just let our eyes be enlightened to the truth that you have for us, that your Holy Spirit would come and fill each one of us, that we might understand your word and might find conviction from your word and encouragement from your word and just direction for our lives from your word. So be with us as we study your word together this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, I want you to see in Psalm 110 that Jesus is the absolute reigning king. He is the sovereign king over all that there is. Now, to understand the Psalms, remember as we've looked at the Messianic Psalms, you have to look at the Messianic Psalms with two perspectives. You have to look back historically 
it, how this was understood in terms of the kings in Old Testament history. But you also have to look forward. You have to look towards how only Christ could fulfill these, these parts of what we see in the Psalms. So we're going to do both of that this morning. So let's start looking backwards. Let's start looking at the historical context of what this had to do with King David of Israel and the earthly kings of Israel. Now, to understand what was happening historically here, you have to understand the structure of the psalm. There's two different oracles here. An oracle is a direct word from God, and this is significant. There's two things that God says directly to the kings of Israel, to King David and to the kings that would follow in King David. The first one's in verse 1. That'll be explained in the two verses that follow. And the second oracle, the statement from God, is in verse 4, and that'll be explained in verses 5 to 7. So our psalm is two oracles from God, with several verses explaining what that looks like in the king's life. So let's go back to the very first oracle. Go back to verse 1 of Psalm 110. The first thing that God says to an earthly king here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the emphasis here is in prophetic, what we'll get to in just a minute, how this points to Christ. But there's something historically here for us to understand about God's plan for the kings. Notice what he says, sit in my right hand. Now, right hand was a place of honor. God is saying to King David of Israel and to the earthly kings, sit at my right hand. He's saying, I'm giving you a place of honor. I'm appointing you to rule on my behalf. Now, notice this. This is important for the earthly kings here. God's still on the throne. They're not. They're at God's right hand. They're to submit to God's rule and reign the way God would have them reign, submitting to the will of God. But notice there's something significant that God tells to David here. He says, sit in my right hand. He tells him to sit. At the time to sit means that something had been accomplished. You could sit down because the king had done what the king was supposed to do. But David hadn't finished everything he'd been called to do in his reign. So how could he sit down? Well, God was making a point to him. God was making a point that any victory, any success that King David had would have to come from God himself. And that's what the very next phrase of verse 1 indicates. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Confusing? Why a footstool? And this is poetic imagery in the Psalms. A footstool was a common metaphor at the time for victory, for control. And so saying, you know, David, sit down. I will accomplish your victories for you until your enemies are your footstool, until you're the one reigning on my behalf. It's not David's military strategy that's going to make him successful. It's God working through him. So we try to pull that together and summarize verse 1. Basically, God is telling David and the kings that follow him, he's saying, I am the true God, I am the true king, and I'm greater than you, but I'm giving you the right to rule on my behalf. I want to work through you, and I want to grow my kingdom through you so I am known. If you remember back to Israel's history, the whole point of Israel was to be a light to the nations. And so God is telling the kings, submit to me, let me work through you so that my name is known in all of the world. And what's the king's task? To spend time with God, to obey him, to follow his plans, to rule as God's ambassadors in God's behalf in the world there. And what follows in the next two verses is that happening, showing us what it looks like when King David or the the kings of Israel obey God and follow God. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Remember, that's the description of Jerusalem. Your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, God's basically saying, go do what I've called you to do, and I will work through you. But it gets even more amazing for these earthly kings because God promises to help them as they serve as his ambassadors. Look at verse 3. God gives two types of help to his earthly king. The first one is he promises to raise up people to help King David. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
basically what, what God tells to David is, you're not alone in this. I will stir the hearts of my people to come alongside you to accomplish my purposes. But even better than that is this next phrase that help God offers. God promises to help David himself. Look at this next phrase. This is a strange phrase in the Hebrew. It says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. Now, what in the world is that talking about? The womb of the morning. I assume you've never told anyone, from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. What that is describing is images of strength and vigor here. The, the freshness of the morning, the strength you have when you first get up on a new day, the strength you had when you were a teenager, not an adult, whatever that is in your life. He's saying, David, I will give you the strength you need to accomplish my purposes as I work through you to, to do all these things. So that's the first oracle to David, historically what it was understood as. And you see that fulfilled at the end of the psalm. Go to Psalm 7, the very last verse. Again, this is poetic images for us. He, now the earthly king, will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. These are images of him. He's conquered his enemies. He's victorious. So now he can stop. He can bend down without fear of being defeated. Drink from the stream. And now he can lift up his head in victory and celebration because God has accomplished what God's plans was through the earthly king. But there's a second oracle here for us in this, addressed historically again to the king. And look at verse 4. This is the second direct word from God to the earthly king. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if the psalm is not confusing enough, now let's take it to a new level of confusing, right? He's speaking to the earthly king, to David, and the kings that follow says, you're also a priest like Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? Well, we have to go back to Genesis 14, where you see Melchizedek to understand. So Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. I want you to see this on the screen. The context here is Abram has just won a big victory. And he goes and meets this guy named Melchizedek. And here's where we are. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now let me pause for a second. Salem was a name for Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. So we're back in Genesis now. We're a long time before. So before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, it was a city called Salem. And there was a king of Salem. He was the one who governed and ruled this area that today would be Jerusalem. But notice the next phrase. He was a priest of the Most High God. So this king of Jerusalem, of Salem, had a dual function. He was the king who governed, but he's also the priest. And what does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God and God to the people. He teaches the people about God. He blesses them. He prays for them. He does the priestly functions of leading them in worship. And that's, in fact, what happens in Genesis 14 as Abram appears before Melchizedek. So verse 19, the very next verse now, you have, And he, this is Melchizedek, blessed him, that's Abram, and said to him, so this is what the priest king is now saying to Abram, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessing of heaven and earth. In verse 20, the next verse. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So you see what the priest has done here? Abram has come, excited about his victory, and the priest says, Time out, Abram. You won only because of God. He upholds to Abram the absolute sovereignty of God, that God is the reigning one, and any success that Abram has had has come because God has given it to him. And then Abram responds by giving him a tenth of everything, by offering a tithe to the priest here for the priestly work that's being done. So why in the world is this being referenced in Psalm 110? Again, go back to verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that have to do with King David here? Well, God's plan for his kings was twofold. The kings of Israel were to govern wisely. They were to represent God to the people and come up with wise laws and to govern the people according to God's will as revealed in God's word. 
But secondly, the kings were to point people back to God. Remember, God's the one who put them there. God's the one who is sovereign over all things. And so they're to point the people back to him. They're to point people to holiness. The kings were to point people to God's way. They were to hold up God's law. They were to be like a priest to the people. Now, so they were to be wise kings and priests to the people. So now, think back to your knowledge of Old Testament history and to the kings of Israel. Did they function well as priest kings? And the answer is no. Did the kings of Israel, for the most part, see themselves as God's ambassadors? Did they see themselves as under God and wanting simply to do what God wanted them to do? Or did the kings of Israel want to follow their own ways and make it about them and their fame and their power and their fortunes and accomplishing their ways? What you see happening over and over in Old Testament history is these kings didn't govern wisely. They didn't follow God's will. They made up their own plans to promote self. You see how it hurt them and hurt the people. Now think about the function of the king priest here. Did the kings of the Old Testament point people to worship God? Or did the kings of the Old Testament very quickly run after idolatry, and very quickly run after immorality, and very quickly run after living life the way they wanted to live life? And that's what you see happen over and over again. They led people away. So many, if not most, of the Old Testament kings, bottom line, they did not let God reign in their lives. They did not govern wisely. They did not point people back to God. And each time it became a painful reminder for the people, especially as God would discipline them through the enemies of Israel, that no man could fulfill the promise of Psalm 110, that no one could live out what we see prophesied right here before us. But that brought hope because a king was coming and he would be from their lineage who would be the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who could accomplish all the things that they have been longing for. So with that historical context in place, now turn and look at the same psalm from a different perspective, through a different lens. Now we look at this psalm looking forward. This was written before Christ came. I want you to see how this points to Christ. This whole psalm, Psalm 110, is all about Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, this, this psalm is the most quoted chapter from the whole Old Testament. Think about the entirety of the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted more in the New Testament than any other chapter in all of the Old Testament because it's all about Jesus, all about the Messiah. What seems like puzzles to us here in Psalm 110 was a treasure to the New Testament church because it showed who Jesus was. It showed Jesus to be the reigning king. So don't you see that? Now let's go back to the very first oracle. Go back to verse 1 of Psalm 110. Now looking forward to how this pointed to Christ for them. The Lord says to my Lord. Now just stop right there in this phrase. Now this looks funny to us because you see the word Lord twice there. The first one in your Bible should be all caps. That's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, Master. So you have two different words for Lord being used here. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 22 to speak of himself. When he's showing the Pharisees and the religious leaders who he is, he points this to show how there's no way David could fulfill this. There's no way this would make sense just for David. But the Father is saying to the Son, you see two persons of the Trinity here, God the Father is saying to God the Son here in this. Unless we make sure we understand that's what's really happening, the New Testament tells us this. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. This is Pentecost. Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And here's what he says. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Now, let me stop there. That doesn't mean David was not a believer. It means David didn't have a bodily resurrection. David's body was buried. His soul went unto heaven. But David himself says, see if this sounds familiar, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is one of the many places this is quoted. Until I make the enemies your footstool. Now, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Again, notice the emphasis Peter's making here. Know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter uses Psalm 110 to tell the Jewish people at the time, listen here, the Lord who is prophesied in Psalm 110 is Christ, the Son of God, the one who just died for your sins. When the people heard this, they were actually cut to the heart. So this is, go back to Psalm 110, verse 1. God the Father, the Lord, says to my Lord, to Jesus, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Remember what I mentioned earlier? Sitting means he's accomplished his mission. See, this all throughout Scripture, that Christ certainly fulfilled all that he came to do. See, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, and I encourage you sometime when you have time, read the book of Hebrews, read Psalm 110, then read the book of Hebrews. There's so much that comes from this. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did what? What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He accomplished what he came to do. He didn't come to just be a baby in a manger. He came to fulfill the law. He came to go to the cross, to die for our sins. He came to rise from the dead, defeating death. He has sat down at the right hand of God because he's accomplished what he has done. Then the very next verse in Hebrews tells us another aspect of him being the reigning king. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Friends, just as Jesus came to rescue his people, to sacrifice himself so they could be forgiven, we must not forget the other side of that. All those who refuse to submit to Christ's reign in their life, they'll meet Christ as a judge. All those who refuse to submit to him, to follow him, to love him, and to, and to worship him, they will see the other side of his, his reign, and that is judgment. In fact, that's what verse 1 back in Psalm 110 reminds us that he was just quoting here. Go back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friend, God will judge all who do not submit to Jesus in their lives. Friends, this is not based on whether or not you prayed a prayer, whether or not you walked an aisle and got baptized and joined a church or served in a church. All who, who refuse to yield to Christ as Lord over their lives are an enemy of God and will be judged for that, for failing to submit to the reign, the rule of Christ. You see that again in the second oracle here. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, this is now the Father not speaking to God the Son, to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, you are a forever priest. Now what does that mean? Well, let's go back to the book of Hebrews that quotes this to get to understand that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. So there's a few verses here to get the context of what the author of Hebrews, which we do not know who that is, what he's saying here. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness, or similar to Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by, notice this, the power of an indestructible life. That a priest was prophesied who was coming, who would become a priest because he had an indestructible life. That's Christ who died and rose again because death could not hold him. Then verse 17, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, here's one of the many, many references in Hebrews and throughout all the New Testament to Psalm 110. But pointing this to Christ being the forever priest. Now, what does that have to do with us? How does that change our lives? Skip down a few verses to verse number 21, still in Hebrews chapter 7. This one, this Christ was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Okay, here you go. There's Psalm 110 again and again and again in Hebrews. You are a priest forever. Then the next verse. This makes Jesus, notice this, the guarantor of a better covenant. 
Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, now this is how it gets real for us here, friends. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Psalm 110 has much relevance for our lives because if Christ is the forever priest, then no matter what has happened in our lives, if we surrender to his lordship, if we submit to his reign and seek his forgiveness, he can save us no matter what has happened and what we have done. As we draw near to him, he will rescue us. Notice this, once he rescues us, he doesn't stop being our priest. He lives to make intercession. He lives to pray to the Father on our behalf for us. Jesus is the king who wants to rule and reign in our hearts. He wants to be our priest He does that by sacrificing himself so that we can be covered with his holiness, with his righteousness. And then he prays for us that we would grow in that. But again, friends, like we've seen with the other oracle, there's two sides of Christ reigning. He wants to reign in our life as our priest, as the one who intercedes for us. But if we do not let him reign in our life, if we do not seek to draw near to him, there's a different side of this reign in in us, and that's the judgment. Go back to Psalm 110 and look at verse 6. He... Jesus will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, again, this isn't a pleasant verse, but this is a poetic verse to remind us that as Christ rules and reigns, he will bring judgment on all of his enemies. On all those who oppose his rule and reign in their life, he will judge them one day. So Psalm 110 this Christmas is a warning for us that the one who came as a baby in a manger is coming back, not as a baby in a manger, He's coming back as a reigning king. And all those who have not submitted to his reign before he comes back will find terror when they see him because he's coming to, verse 6, execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So, friends, Jesus is a reigning king, but that begs an important question for us. My question for you this Christmas is this. If Jesus is the reigning king, is he reigning in you and is he reigning in me? Jesus is the reigning king, but the question is, is he reigning in us? Is he our boss? Is he our master? Is he our Lord? Are we submitted to him? Is he reigning in us? Notice something here. Go back to verse 3. Again, looking towards the messianic aspect of this psalm. Verse 3, he says, Your people, now who is this? These are God's people, the people who are trusting in the Messiah alone, followers of Jesus. If you are trusting in Christ, if you think you're a follower of Christ, this is just supposed to describe what your life is like. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. Notice how we're described. If you're a follower of Christ, the evidence, the fruit that you are changed and you're following Christ is ascribed for us here. The Father says to Jesus, your people, your followers, your believers will certainly offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Friends, God's people who know Jesus have a relationship with him, believe in him, worship him, and gladly submit to his reign in their lives. A follower of Christ gladly, joyfully submits to Christ's rule in their lives. That's why we stress over and over, Christ is either your Savior and your Lord, or neither. You can't have Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. He can't, you can't have him forgive you of your sins and then you go live like you want to live and not care about him. It doesn't matter if you pray the prayer, walk the aisle, get baptized, join the church, serve in a leadership role, friends. The issue is, are you submitting to his Lordship of your life? Are you trusting in him alone to rule and reign every day in your life? Notice how followers of Christ are described here. I love the two phrases that give us insight into what it looks like for Christ to be Lord. The first thing says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day 
of your power. Well, power was a military image here of a battle. So back historically, looking back at this, God was telling King David that when he goes into battle, God's going to raise up his people to go support him so he's not alone. Now look at this from the messianic aspect. If we're a child of God, if we're a follower of Christ, it's saying that God's people are eager to do God's work. That when Jesus is our Lord, is our boss, that means we begin to have our hearts stirred by him to want to follow his plans and follow his priorities. Now, we don't have battles today. God's kingdom doesn't advance with battles. We're not a theocracy like Israel was at the time. God's kingdom advances when we show the love of Christ to other people. We take the word of God and take it to people who have never heard and speak to them about the truth of who Jesus is. That's our role as his ambassadors. And so your people will offer us freely on the day of your power. People who have Christ as their Lord, who let Christ reign in them, want to align their lives to do what God's called them to do, to be his ambassadors, take the gospel to their families, their neighbors, their friends, and the nations. And yet, friends, so often we're like those kings of Israel who take all the blessings of God and make it about us and start monopolizing those blessings. We have all these amazing privileges. We have grace upon grace and all these things from the Lord. And we start trying to amass our own fame, our own fortune, start trusting our own wisdom, just like the kings of Israel did. Friends, is Jesus reigning in us are we following his plans and his priorities? Or are we living for ourselves? There's a second phrase here that gives a lot of insight into what it looks like to have Christ reign in us. Notice verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Now at the time, again, looking historically, this is an image of a people who were consecrated, an image of people who were set apart, who had set themselves apart before the Lord so they could be useful to the king. But now look at that in terms of Christ. We're to be set apart for Christ. Now, friends, the reality is we saw this when we studied Ephesians. You and I can't be holy on our own. I can never have clean enough hands or pure enough heart to get to God on my own. I can't be holy on my own. The reality is when Christ died on the cross, not only was all my sin put on Christ, but all of his righteousness, all of his holiness was put on me. So it's not any holiness on my own part, but when I approach the Father, he welcomes me into his throne room before his throne of grace because he sees Christ's righteousness covering us, not because of anything on our own. But friends, as the Holy Spirit works in us, we're positionally holy before God. He begins to stir our hearts where we begin to long to practically live that out. We begin to see the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and teaching us from the Word of God. And we begin to long to practically live out who God already sees us as being. And so when Jesus reigns in us, we find our hearts longing to have holy garments. We find ourselves thankful for the salvation that makes us holy in God's eyes. We find our hearts longing more and more to want to practically live out how God already sees us. That means when we fall, we can run right back to our Father because we know He gives grace upon grace as He forgives us time and time again. We find strength to battle the temptations. We find hearts that are sad and broken when we, fa- when we fail His standards. But we find a heart that welcomes His embrace and his forgiveness. Yet, friends, aren't we so often like the kings of the Old Testament? We have this offer of forgiveness, this offer of him making us holy, the offer of having a way out when there's temptation, yet we like to cling to our sin. And we don't run back to grace. We want to cling to our sin and the things that we enjoy. Friends, is Jesus reigning in us? Are we finding him growing us in holiness? Are we finding his word transforming us? Are we finding conviction from the Holy Spirit when we sin? Is he reigning in us? Friends, Jesus came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, not to stay a baby in a manger. Like I said earlier, he came to live a perfect life and fulfill the loss. We could be a perfect sacrifice to take our place in that cruel Roman cross. He came to die. 
to take all of our sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven, but also to give us all of his righteousness so we would stand holy before God and be able to approach God covered in his holiness and his righteousness. But he also came, friends, not to leave us where we are. Jesus loves us so much. He doesn't say, come as you are, period. He says, come as you are and let me change you. He says, come, let me transform you. Come, let my word, empowered by my Holy Spirit, transform your life and make you into who I want you to be. Jesus came to rule and to reign, not just as a sovereign ruler overall. He came to rule and reign in every one of our lives. So the question for us this Christmas, as we see the reminders of the baby in the manger, we think about Christ coming. Is yes, let's take that from Christmas and remember what he came to do. That was to sacrifice himself so that we could stand before God. He also came to change us, to transform us. And let's ask ourselves this Christmas season, is the reigning king reigning in me? Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're thankful that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Lord Jesus, before you ever came, you already showed King David that the Messiah was coming, that he was going to be the true king to rule over his people. He was going to be the true priest who could transform his people. And Lord, I thank you that your word points us to these truths. Lord, I pray this Christmas season for myself and each of these precious brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would be reigning and ruling in our lives. Lord, that the way we worship you, the way we think about you, the way we talk about you, Lord, the way we interact with our kids this week, Lord, the way we interact with family members and friends, Lord, the way we view the world and everything, Lord, that you would rule and reign. Lord, you see our hearts. Lord, you see all the sinfulness and evilness in each one of our hearts. Yet, Lord, when you look at us, you don't see that anymore. You see Christ. You see his holiness, his righteousness covering us. And you invite us to walk into your throne room to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So Lord, I pray this Christmas season that in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, that you would show us areas where we're trying to cling to reigning our own lives versus having open hands asking you to reign in our lives. For areas that we're not surrendering to your lordship, areas that we're not asking you to take control of. Would you this Christmas season, in your gracious compassion to us, your children, would you show those to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit? Would you convict us of areas, whether it's the way we're treating our kids, whether it's the way we're viewing material possessions, whether it's the way we're not tackling sin issues in our life that you're calling us to pursue holiness in by your grace, or whatever it is, or I don't know what it'll be in each of our hearts, but God, you do because you're the sovereign ruler. You see everything. Nothing is hidden from your gaze. No thought we've ever thought, nothing we've ever done is hidden from your all-consuming gaze. Lord, in your compassion and mercy and grace, would you look upon us, your very needy children this Christmas season, and point out to us, Lord, in your kindness, those areas that we need to surrender to you afresh and cry out, Lord, forgive me for the sin I'm hanging on to, or Lord, forgive me for the way I'm interacting with that person, or Lord, forgive me for clinging to that instead of trusting you with it. Lord, whatever it is, would you give that, that gentle, kind conviction that we need? And by your grace, as your Holy Spirit dwells in us, would you lead us to places of repentance this Christmas season? Every time we see a nativity set, every time we hear a Christmas carol, would it be something that you would sovereignly use to increase your rule and your reign in each one of our hearts? God, I pray as we find that conviction, we will realize, Lord Jesus, you are the great high priest. And when we run back to you, when we draw near to you, that there is sweet forgiveness, sweet mercies. Every time I cry out, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help. God, thank you for the promise of your word that when we confess our sins, God, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray we would do that this Christmas season, Lord. 
that you would reign and rule in all of our lives, and Lord, that you would use us as you expand your reign and your rule to other people. But I pray that the joy that we have in you, Lord, the way we talk about you this Christmas season would be something you would use to point others to yourself as well. And so, Lord, as you rule and reign in our lives this Christmas, Lord, would you put on people, put people in our hearts, Lord, who need to be pointed to you? Whether it's a stranger we meet out shopping, or whether it's a, someone living in our own household, whether it's a coworker, a friend, someone we bump into at a Christmas party, Lord, would you show us people that you want us to talk to about Jesus this Christmas season, to point them to your rule and your reign, so those who are right now your enemies might become your friends. Lord, as you do these things, Lord, we will find the joy and you will get all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?